On May 5th, 1989, Bill took out an ad in the full-page ad in the San Francisco Chronicle to protest President Ronald Reagan's visit to Bitburg, a cemetery in Bitburg, Germany. It's a very long ad, speaks to the span of attention back then. But in the second paragraph, and Bill wrote all this, and here's the voice. In the face of myriad pleas ranging from U.S. veterans groups to senators and congresspeople representing all of our states, to Americans of all faiths and creeds, to the citizens of the state of Israel, to a direct in-person plea of Eli Wiesel, chairman of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council, who at a White House ceremony in front of a nation, national TV audience implored the president to, quote, do something else to find a way, another way. President Reagan, nonetheless, has decided to go to that particular cemetery. The president's rationale on this issue suggests a tragic mentality, for it implies that the Holocaust horrors are part of the past and should be forgiven and forgotten. Impossible. Many of us, fortunate enough to have come here from Europe to live in peace, cannot forget and will not forgive. As Mr. Wiesel said at the White House, quote, forgive them not, Father, for they knew what they did. The issue here is not politics, but good and evil, and we must never confuse them. The issue here being that at the cemetery in Bitburg, members of the Waffen-SS, all of whom were volunteers, were interred. And by going there, Reagan was going to pay respect to them as well. And as Bill pointed out, they were the ones who cut the fingers off the Jews to get the rings and took the gold out of the teeth after they had been gassed at Auschwitz. This is Bill speaking in his own voice. It was not only Jews who were angry about Reagan's visit. I talked to veterans, and they were incensed. When I started asking people to come to the rally, no one turned me down. The mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, Willie Brown, the Speaker of the State Assembly, five of our city supervisors, Reverend Cecil Williams from Glide Memorial Church, Tom Lantos from the U.S. House of Representatives, who himself was a Holocaust survivor. So on the day of the rally, there was a stage constructed in Union Square. People stood up and spoke. Many of them were Holocaust survivors. Here's Bill again. What stuck most in my mind were the three or four Holocaust survivors who spoke a lady from down on the peninsula who stepped to the microphone, stood there for maybe 15 or 20 seconds without saying her word. Then her arms came up as if to say, why? As if she was dumbfounded. The last one to speak that day was Bill himself. He read some selections from the poems and essays of Thomas Merton. And the rally was over. It was a San Francisco event. It wasn't supremely crowded. There were people there. It was part of these continuing protests. Long after this, someone, perhaps Bill, perhaps someone else, told me they remembered seeing some skinheads standing at the back of the crowd. What then happened, several days later, a few days later, persons who were never caught or identified threw three Molotov cocktails into Bill's offices at Jerry 201 11th Street. Spent a lot of time in that office. Jerry spent a good deal of his life working in that office. The way it was constructed, it was like a box. And as it was explained to me later, 
The Molotov cocktails exploded. Fire kept getting hotter and hotter. There was nowhere for it to go until the roof collapsed. This is Bill. Not that our rally did any good. Reagan went to Bitburg on May 5th. By then, I was in Europe. I had gone over there to meet with Bob Geldof concerning live aid. I called the office from Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat in the south of France, and the answering service answered. I said, Jan, please? Bill's personal assistant. They said, Bill Graham is closed today. They didn't even say Bill Graham presents. I said, what do you mean it's closed today? It's a Tuesday. She said, hold on a second, because she had another call coming through. When she got back on, I said, I'm going to call back. Let the phone ring, because I want to get through. I have 24 lines in the office. Why are you answering the phones for them in the middle of the day? She said, I told you, sir, Bill Graham is closed today. I said, how can it be closed? It's Tuesday. Her exact words were, Bill Graham burned down last night. Not Bill Graham presents, Bill Graham. Bill then flew back to San Francisco in a state of shock, needless to say. It's him now. I didn't want anyone to pick me up at the airport in San Francisco, so I took a cab to the office. Cab driver knew who I was. We drove for a while in silence, and he said, I was really sorry to hear about your fire. It was nice, as if we were friendly, but we just didn't know it. During the trip back, a kind of guilt had begun to set in. When I got there, it hit me the hardest. I had already started thinking about what was gone. Two letters immediately came to mind. A woman who wrote to me and said, I'm 39 years old, my name is so-and-so. 1966 and 67, I worked in your box office with your wife, Bonnie. Became pregnant, my man left, and I didn't know what to do. In the course of 19 months, I stole $3,200 from you. I am now a registered nurse in Marin and have gone back to the church. I always knew you treated me fairly, and now I want to make my peace. Please find and close $300, and I'll send the rest as I can. May God be with you, and will you forgive me? I covered her name with a piece of paper and put the letter up in my office, because when I was a kid, I did what she had done. I snuck into the movies plenty of times. I needed, I took. The other letter was from someone who had snuck in the side door at the Fillmore East and had one of the great experiences of his life. He sent me five singles and the rest in change in a baggie to pay for that ticket, which cost $5.50 at the time. Two people who had done something they thought was wrong and dealt with it from a good place. So now the reaction starts. People are so furious. Bill has lost everything that he's ever collected in his entire life, as Holocaust survivors always do, and put up on the walls of this office. I'll read from Jerry Pompili. He's with us. I was fucking irate. I was sure, um, you'll forgive me for the language, folks. Contemporary Jewish Museum, forgive me. I was sure that it was a bunch of suck-ass right-wing assholes from Panola Hercules. I knew we could get these fucking guys, and all it would take was money. I designed an ad. I wanted to run this ad in the paper, promising a $10,000 reward. Wasn't just Jerry. David Rubinson, a great producer, Moby Grape, Bill's partner in a record label, flew in from Tokyo, was so beside himself, crying. We'll go into every bar in the East Bay. We'll put $10,000 on the table. We'll find out who did this, Bill. We'll get these guys. I was beside myself, and I was crying. And Bill was saying, we can't do that. We can't do that. It's over. 
I'm not going to go back and do this and perpetuate this thing. We're going to forbear. We're just going to let it go, and we're not going to perpetuate more of the retribution vengeance number. Having said that, Bill was always spectacularly, brilliantly vague about the results of his actions on his own psyche. <laughs> there were hundreds of gold and platinum records on those walls. Most of them were in the back. Those records were just symbols of success, symbols of somebody having made a lot of money with a record. The photos and letters expressed far more. The letters from all the musicians had been on the arms tours, saying how they felt about it. In terms of Fillmore posters, I had maybe 200 framed on the walls. In my office, I had framed a pair of counterfeit tickets from a New Year's Eve at Winterland in the late 60s, $5 including breakfast. I remember so clearly when they brought the two people who had passed the comfort tickets into my office. A guy in his mid-twenties with a beard and his girlfriend, they had on Goodwill clothing. She had on a cloth she had wrapped around herself, but clean and nice. I looked at the five-color poster that Bonnie had done for the show. It was a globe with doves flying around it. The guy had reproduced that poster down to ticket size. The fine print on it looked like Japanese. I said, how long did it take to paint these tickets? He said, two weeks, sir. I asked him where he lived, and he said, Eureka. I asked, how did you get down here? He said, hitchhiked. His wife was standing there like a little angel, and all they wanted to do was spend the evening with the dead and Janice and Quicksilver, and then have breakfast there with all their friends. Finally, I said, this is an incredible piece of work. Here, enjoy yourself. I gave them backstage passes. I had those tickets framed, and they were up on the wall of my office, and they burned in the fire. The fire was the beginning of a stretch of time in my life where it was like my balance was being challenged on a constant basis. I did not know if I was going to make it at times. Every time my head came up and I said, I think everything's going to be okay, my head got shoved back underwater again. There were times when my head was underwater for such a long time, I was gagging. In the ensuing years after the fire, there were no intervals. There were no rehab periods. Only madness and new projects and more and more work. I have to fend off negative traits in myself all the time. A dark voice that says, no, you have no right to do that. I'm 20 pounds overweight right now, and I had a bagel and cheese and butter for breakfast. <laughs> the dark voice, and it fucks with me all the time. The dark voice said to me that in terms of the fire, I was being punished for something I had done. I still feel that. The fire was the single closest thing to a physical handicap I will ever have, like a limp that will never leave me. Not so much the fire itself, but that I must have done something to make it happen. And that's how the chapter ends. So. What happened after that, and this is, I was there, staying with Bill in Masada, as only Bill would have named his house in Marin. <laughs> Masada, where the Jews kill themselves, rather than surrender, fair enough. Bill never surrendered. Uh, after this, he plunged into Live Aid, which was the largest rock and roll concert ever performed, Global Jukebox. He had a grievous breakup in a grievous relationship. And then, making everything that much worse, he had fought brutally with the Rolling Stones in 1969, courted them brilliantly in 1972, 
taken them on triumphal tours of America and Europe in 1981 and 1982. And then when they decided to come back out again, they went with somebody else, and it crushed him. And he entered a darkest period of his life. He did, however, survive that. Uh, David Graham, his older son, Alex, his younger son, is with us today. David's not here. As David wrote in the afterword to the book, my father was the ultimate survivor. And so Bill was, and I think you'll see this in the show. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask me, please do. We're going to go home early.